Hello and welcome to the Rubber Duck Dev Show. I'm Chris. I'm Creston. And I'm also Chris. And we have an echo in the show tonight. So, um, yeah, we're excited to have Chris Oliver here. Uh, he comes to us from uh, Remote Ruby Podcast and Go Rails and Jumpstart Rails and Hatchbox IO. How the hell do you have any time to come and be on our show? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's nuts. Uh, but we do yeah. appreciate you being here. Um, we're really excited to have a chat with you tonight. We were having a, a pre-chat before the show. Um, really good, really good chat. We were getting into some stuff, and I started thinking, man, we ought to save some of this for the show. <laughs> you know? um, we can just repeat ourselves. That's right. That's right. Um, but yeah, it's really great to meet you, man. I've uh, been, been reading and following your work for quite a while without knowing who I was following. Uh, but <laughs> now, you know, to put, put a face to the name is really nice um so we're gonna have a lot of fun talking on the show tonight about the page m and that you've worked on and your experiences with oss and kind of the rewards and challenges of doing oss work and maintenance and stuff hey colin welcome to the show um so before we get into the meat of the show it's time for week in review so creston how was your week Pretty good. I actually got a lot done. Although it is all, I mean, I got a major feature released for my product that does a lot of special email notifications where someone can even configure if a form gets submitted. It's basically does online giving, online event registration. But if a form gets submitted that has a particular field check, you can actually customize an email notification to go to a specific person for that. So building in this type of notification system that took a little bit of time, but that was a big feature released. Other than that, a lot of uh, other database consulting even did some Ansible consulting. So it's basically DevOps related stuff. What about you? Well, thanks for thanks for having me on, guys. Um, yeah, I we Colin and I were actually just working on some. Some Hotwire Turbo JavaScript stuff. Uh, the new beta has a bunch of new goodies and other uh, improvements. So we've been working on kind of integrating that with Jumpstart and getting that on uh, Go Rails and Hatchbox and everything. And the other big thing we did this week was finally merged in a, a big payments update for for Jumpstart that's been in the works for months now. So excited for that um which we can talk more about but uh yeah there's just lots of payments and javascript stuff too wow cool uh so i've spent the majority of my week trying to unnoob myself from the simple cov stuff i i don't know why i'm having such a problem because i've used simple cov for a long time but I never tried to integrate it into the CI system that had a lot of parallel test runs of both Cucumber and RSpec and try to get it all aggregated out the back end. Um, that's proven to be a bit of a challenge, but kind of a fun challenge, actually, because uh, I'm having to do some, some CI scripting work to get that all flowing right. Um, but it's it's we kind of discovered that there were some places where... We didn't have as much test coverage as we thought we did, and we didn't have the real overall view of what we were actually covering, uh, because when we were looking at it, it was looking at the Cucumber suite and the RSpec suite kind of separately and not aggregated. 
And also, we weren't making use of... I mean, before I got there, they were using RCOV and CodeCov. RCOV is wildly out of date now. Um, but um, they weren't getting the holistic view. And so... I, I'm, we found out that there was a lot of code that um, a lot of, because of like guard clauses and the stuff, the way Ruby is written and tertiary um, clauses and stuff, that you can't just use line coverage. So we're trying to also imp implement the branch coverage so that it can tell you on a particular line, yeah, I hit this condition, but I didn't hit this one. Um, because that was actually causing us a lot of problems. We were missing edge cases because we were, yeah, we, we hit the line, but we didn't hit all the conditions in the line, and we didn't really know that. So, um, Yeah, that's the thing. Like, You can easily miss uh, like ternary operators, I think. <laughs> so if you're, if you're using that, that as a tool. So, you know, it, your test may only check one case, but and it's marked as, hey, this line is covered. But it's not. <laughs> yeah, guard clauses can cause some problems there too, depending on how you write them out and stuff. Um, so it's it's been a bit of a trick, and I'm I'm excited to kind of see how that lays out because SimpleCov has a the concept of doing branch coverage as well as just line coverage. It's not their default; you have to turn it on. But um, and I don't know anything about impacts on the speed of the test suites if you turn that on, but. I'm kind of thinking at this size of of project and how important it is, it's probably worth an extra five or ten minutes on a one-hour test suite to get the extra coverage. <laughs> um, at so, that point, what's another five minutes? Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it takes an hour. <laughs> I, you know, I've gone for lunch anyway. I just get an extra yeah. ten minutes at lunch. So. Um, all right, so we've got a lot of people in the chat. Hello, chat. Welcome. Um, we are glad that you're here. Um, we're going to have a fun conversation tonight, and you guys are very welcome to participate in the conversation, ask questions, share your thoughts, tell me I'm full of crap, which I, I often am. Um, you know, it's cool. Um, we want you involved. That's why we do this live, because we want everybody here involved in the conversation. Uh, so... Let's get into the fun stuff. Chris, tell us a little bit about the PayGem that you've got. Yeah. Um, oh, the PayGem really started as like, you know, I've implemented payments uh, for Stripe and I don't know how many different apps and I'd, I'd like improve it every single time, but then going back and kind of uh, digging into some of the older versions that I did, I was like, you know what? I should like extract this out into something that I can just have as a library that is reusable and then I can upgrade them all and keep them all consistent. Um, so then when we were working on Jumpstart, the first version of that, I was like, you know what, let's not build payments in, let's actually do that and like extract it and make it an open source project and, and whatever. And we can just use Jumpstart as like the version that's fully integrated already out of the box. Um, but you can do whatever you want, you know, with pay directly and it'll be available. And, you know, maybe people will fix bugs and whatnot for me and we'll get to benefit from that too. So it's like where pay started and uh, it was very naive in versions one and two and three and four and probably still currently, you know, naive in different ways. But over time, it's definitely evolved a lot from being a, uh, you know, very simple Rails engine 
to uh fairly fairly complicated but like supports a lot of things in as minimal way as possible or we don't want to I don't want to build a library for an API that's going to change from underneath me and constantly <laughs> have to deal with that because then effectively then might as well go work for the company, you know? So yeah. uh, that's been an interesting challenge of balancing all that stuff, but you know, that's, that's where we've gotten um, to inversion. We just launched version five and it supports subscriptions, one-time billing or one-time checkout, uh, Stripe checkout, PayPal, Paddle. We got a fake payment processor, uh, Braintree um, supports like kind of a, for the basic subscriptions and stuff, like the, all the same interface, but allows you to break out and do stuff that's, you know, unique for meter billing that Stripe does that Braintree doesn't do or whatever, or Stripe tax that Braintree does not do. So it's been interesting to balance all of that because um, I've never had a, that big of a project uh, to ever do that's open source that tries to abstract for APIs or whatever. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So had you done open source stuff before that? Yeah, um, my first open source project was really my first actual programming project that was like serious. So back when I was in high school, got my first laptop as I'm about to go off to college. And I was like, I'm going to install Linux on there. Um, Cause windows millennium edition was terrible. Yada, yada, yada. Um, <laughs> and I downloaded, or I got a Ubuntu, whatever, 7.04, um, you know, CD burned, installed it on my laptop and um, we had dial up at my parents' house. And so I like, realized very quickly you don't just download an executable and it installs everything you like run a package manager and it goes from finds dependencies and that really requires internet so my first real open source project was uh called carex where i reverse engineered that in python and i could run it on a flash drive at school on a high-speed internet download it to a flash drive and then install offline when i got home so it was a kind of a ridiculous project for my first like real programming thing, but you know, you put yourself in the fire and you have to learn it and figure it out. And I learned a lot real fast, but I probably wrote, I bet you I wrote that from scratch like 14 times because I didn't know object oriented programming. So I like learned like, Oh, I'll try using a class here, even though I don't really know how or why I would, apply this because I'm teaching myself programming in, in grade school and high school and stuff. So nothing from a professional standpoint, but that got me to like learn about testing and classes and other stuff. Um, so yeah, learned, uh, learned a heck of a lot doing that for a few years. Cool. Now was that open source and was posted somewhere and available? Yeah, so okay. Yes. Um, so I was spending a ton of time on the Ubuntu forums, uh, writing tutorials and just chatting with people, answering questions if, if I could. Okay. And so I wrote the first version, like uploaded it to the forum, I think, as a zip file, and we made a new forum thread announcing this and what it does and whatever. And uh, there's lots of other people there who picked it up, like uh, somebody, rural people, definitely liked it 
um because they also had dial-up that wasn't consistent or you know i'd be downloading a package like firefox and its dependencies all night long and it would like hiccup and at 4 a.m and whatever so they they liked using that but i found that there were other people around the world like somebody in south africa had a school that they used to um they used carex to download all the software and install because they had really spotty electricity and power and internet of course um, so the, I was getting like messages from these people asking for different features and whatever. And I remember I'd have to look it up, but somebody in the government email or messaged me about it too, because they were like, yeah, I'm working on this, like this computer that is secure and cannot have network access. And this is the only like easy way I can download stuff and put it on there. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> so it was a really unique little uh project because there were a few alternatives but they weren't you know run on a flash drive and luckily you know python is available and easy to run on windows and whatever so it was like a nice project for me to pick up i didn't know it at the time but i learned a crazy amount from doing that just because i built it and then shared it with people and they used it and in ways i had never planned so it was it was a lot of fun and always kind of I remember watching the downloads and just like going crazy over, I get another 50 downloads or whatever. And then eventually after a few years, it was uh, 150,000 or 250,000, something like that. And I got like interviewed on, in the Linux journal magazine. I have like a copy of that at home. There's an article interview with me about it. Um, it was wild, like for an open source project for a college student to, to be doing that. So um, yeah, that was, that was my first real project and like first open source thing, because I want, I did open source because I wanted to give back to the community who like did all this open source code so I could run Ubuntu and like use my computer instead of windows or everything was locked down and proprietary and everything. So yeah. that really inspired me. And then, you know, the, after that, I was like, well, now I need the next project that I do to to surpass that. And so it's been chasing that ever since I feel like. <laughs> so, um, so now your, your big OSS thing is the pay gym, obviously. Um, and yes, that I'm, I'm going to guess is a little more challenging than that first OSS project you did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd say so in, in the sense that like, that project was one I fully controlled and I could change anything I want, but building a library instead of, you know, a, uh, an actual like product thing that nobody else is really plugging into writing library code is totally different. And uh, I've learned a lot doing that. So it's been interesting to learn all those things. Like you imagine if you're a rails developer and want to contribute to rails and Imagine what Raphael's life is like as a baller, you know, contributing to everything related to Rails. Um, there's a lot of just a lot of interesting decisions as a library maintainer that you have to consider that's just backwards compatibility and other things like that. How do we where do we set the boundaries? Because everybody wants, you know, your project to do everything. So how do you decide what goes into pay or rails or what gets cut and what, where do we, where do we draw the line? 
um, that's been an interesting thing I've learned a lot about. Um, and then just in general, the sort of uh, building something that is not going to break every release. And when I realized that I made a mistake in design, um, all these people depend on it and there's database tables and things that <laughs> they have done for using this library that now I need to tell them, Hey, we need to, we need to go move all that stuff and change it up. Um, those have been really hard and uh, really interesting to learn. And I think it is maybe not something, well, you can definitely learn sort of the same things if you're building systems that talk with other systems a lot, you know, especially if you're doing microservices, like keeping things in sync and whatnot is yes. uh, kind of a similar problem in a way. Right. I actually think an open source project that you place database tables within the user's database, that's like next level. Because like <laughs> it's hard to do a little open source thing. But once you start fiddling with their data and you're storing it and then like uh -huh. it means deprecate something and it's like, okay, well, Postgres 17 in the future will now no longer have these things. It's like, uh, yes. So uh, next level. Literally last week, Colin and I were fiddling with one of those where not only do we have to work with your database, but we want this to be compatible with uh, Postgres, MySQL, SQLite, ideally MariaDB and other SQL things. But um, the version of SQLite that currently ships with Ubuntu Jammy Jellyfish is 3.37. 3.38 introduced the arrow syntax for JSON columns and querying those. And uh, like, that's not the same arrow for MySQL either. And Postgres does it slightly differently too. So we can't write a SQL query. We have to go check what database are you using and then do three different SQL queries for compatibility and everything. It's just, uh, it's a pain. And uh, yeah, one of the lessons I learned actually like drew inspiration from watching Rails do this with uh, action mailbox and active storage and action text. Um, originally pay would go and say, Hey, we are going to connect with Stripe and you are going to add these fields to whatever model you have, like your user model or your organization or whatever it might be that needs to collect billing. So we would go say, Hey, add the processor ID and the processor, which might be Stripe or PayPal or Braintree or whatever. And then we'll keep track of their customer ID. And then also like their default card which is, you know, the card lasts for and expiration month and year and uh, the brand. And so you'd put these fields on your model, which sounded great at first and it was simple and that's what I was already doing. So I figured why wouldn't the gem do that too? Um, until then people wanted to use it on multiple models. And then pay ends up having to potentially when a webhook comes in from Stripe, I have to now query multiple models and make n plus one, you know, queries or whatever to find, well, is this for the user model or the organization model or whatever? And then these fields are also very limited in that, um, you know, Stripe and pretty much every payment processor allows multiple cards for same user or actually just not cards, PayPal. You have an email address instead of, you know, last for and so I like cheated on some of these things and I shouldn't have. So I'd put like the PayPal email in the card last four field just for PayPal. And I was like, well, 
it it does the job it's just storage and whatever um it's serves the same sort of purpose but um rails with active storage and action mailbox and several of the other gems those actually create models themselves that rails controls and you can extend them but they actually get to decide these are the fields we're going to add a migration we're going to change the fields and you know the gem gets to control that which was my mistake in the first versions of pay so we ended up in i think pay version three uh we introduced pays models so it ships with pay customer and pay now pay charge pay subscription pay payment method uh, yada 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 and that allows us just to when we add it to your rails app it just says hey what it belongs to on your user model and we'll have a polymorphic relationship so that we maintain our table you can connect it any way you want just like before but also when a webhook comes in from stripe we just query pay customer instead of n tables uh, however many you've plugged it into so that was a really good one to learn that like, yeah, uh, if you're going to write a gem that has any database structure to it that's required, unless it's like soft delete where you actually want to put it on the the user's models, then keep it to yourself, keep it private in the gem. It's a lot easier to work with. That was a very hard learned lesson there. <laughs> yeah, It was very painful to convince people to upgrade and to like go through all the steps to migrate the data because we had to go like create when you go and make that upgrade you've got downtime you know, like you're going to have downtime or you can backfill the data and it's just like a pain so we you know do our best to kind of like give you the upgrade guide but you're probably going to have to go modify this if if you want to have less downtime then you're going to want to go and you know change this but the minimal migration example is there and it's like go through all your users and we'll go through um and create the equivalent pay customers and then we can sync them from the api and backfill any new data like the payment methods we can like backfill all those and collect them all so yeah that was a it is a very big challenge to do your own database stuff in a gem uh, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, database stuff in general is challenging, but having to deal with it everybody's is. database at once is is a little bit of a trick. Yeah. Um, so I, I know that, you know, having being tech people ourselves and having mostly tech audience and, you know, we're a lot, mostly programmers and stuff. We love talking about the code. I'm also interested in um, kind of the, the community aspect of OSS. And what that relationship is like with with the the consumers of the OSS product. So give us some 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 of the hells and some of the joys. You know, I, I want to hear kind of both ends yeah. of that. I mean, I feel like I touched on the joys of it already a bit, where you're like, I can't imagine how people have used this stuff, and it's just wild and really like fulfilling to see. Yeah, I built this thing and it's now being used in, in the government for some random thing. And it's it's just awesome. Like I write software because I want to help people. And that is uh, the easiest way to do that. I feel like it's open source so anybody can use it. And, you know, that makes it easy. There's no burden of you have to pay me first and whatever. So 
that um lots of good stuff just lots of people saying thank you and whatever and contributing back and new ideas and new features that you didn't think of but then obviously there's lots of little like there's lots of documentation that you've got to write and then people are not grateful for when something is broken or they're trying to use it for some reason um in a way that they don't understand and trying to like shoehorn it in um and people get you know they just get to be the way they do you know some people are not grateful and that can be tough or just the sheer amount of like uh volume of requests you'll probably get can be hard to keep up with and you want to do your best to reply to them and and whatever but honestly like you'll get prs um that don't really explain the reason behind the changes and you have to go through and be nice about like I'm going to close this because I don't know. You didn't explain. It's a, a PR with no comments and it just has a bunch of code changes and, you know, stuff like that. So you have to, you have to like do a lot of management stuff on open source projects that um, you don't otherwise, which I think is really good as an experience, but also like can be a, just a drag over time. Um I will say that uh, one of my first projects, I, I wrote a gem called Simple Calendar um, on the joys of, of uh, open source. I wrote Simple Calendar just because I had never written a gem before. And there was like the table, some table generator gem that people use to generate an HTML table that was used as a calendar. And I was like, oh, it'd be nice to just have a gem dedicated to this and could do a week calendar and a month calendar and whatever. So I wrote this gem, published it on, on Ruby gems. And it was like for my own learning and I open sourced it on GitHub and just nobody should use it. And then, uh, you know, a month or two later, somebody was like, yeah, it doesn't work. And they posted on the GitHub and I was like, well, of course it doesn't work. Like I never made it. I like never finished it. And I was just using this to learn. But then I was like, oh, you know what? I'll just go see if I can fix that and make it work for them. And then like now, let me look it up. Uh, simple calendar has a total of 1.6 million downloads Holy from crap. something that I've that I've never actually used for myself. <laughs> I just writ, wrote that to learn. And that was it. I've like never used it in an app like seriously for myself. It was just purely like, oh, I'll try to build something and publish it and just see how that works. I've never published a gem. So those things can be fascinating. And uh, it's it's great to just see it. Like apparently people have found it helpful and uh, that's cool. So. So, so, so with regard to the pay gem, so it sounded like it started, it kind of, you were scratching your own itch, kind of like you've rebuilt yes. payment integrations many times. You said, why don't we just roll this up into a gem and hey, why don't we just release it as open source now? But the arduous journey that you're talking about and all the things you've had to deal with <laughs> is, are you, are you second guessing whether that was a wise course or are you happy with it? I'm just kind of curious how you yes. feel about it now. So that one's a special case because it powers a core piece of Jumpstart, which is a Rails template that I sell that has payments right, right, and right. things built in. So I get to work on that and 
it has direct benefit there. So everything I add to the pay can be added to jumpstart and we get new features there kind of for free, uh, whatever, however right, you might but, call but that. That's, but that's but, is that like a pay product thing. It is. So that's kind of how yes. you're doing a monetization so it, potentially. It funds it? a lot of the development. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. But also Stripe has really taken an interest in it as well. And they actually sponsor development on GitHub sponsors. Um, they sponsor me to keep working on pay and stuff. So it's, it's an interesting one that, you know, because I'm taking, they, they have the Ruby SDK and can't probably justify building a Rails integration and a Hanami integration and Sinatra and every framework. Um, they can do the Ruby language and leave it at that. So in a in effect, they're you know able to benefit from me continuing to work on that as well and provide like a pre-built uh, full integration there. So that's been another side benefit there for projects like Simple Calendar that don't have any real benefits to work on. Like um, I will do them in my free time and do my best, but you know at some point it's like uh, I would rather not fix things on them sometimes and actually just ask people if they report an issue, give them a direction of like, hey, PRs are welcome. Uh, flag it as something that we want help with. Um, maybe it's good for a junior and try and you know do that, but encourage people to actually contribute. And it's a lot less time for me to go and review code sometimes than write it myself and go fix those things. Um, so I try to, for some of those just balance it and encourage other people to get involved um when i can't necessarily you know work on them or they sometimes just fall by the wayside um and honestly like a simple calendar is probably finished the core features we want are pretty much done and you know calendars are not going to change hopefully anytime soon and you know the rails the rail stuff that we do is all very standard public API, no, you know, things that will break in a major rails version upgrade or something. Maybe they would, but you know, they're pretty minor if, if they are at all. So for the most part, I try to get projects like that in a, you know, in a position where they're almost basically done and just minimal maintenance, but like pay will, it depends on third parties. So it'll never be done. It will always break. That's just luckily one that has a sustainability to it because of jumpstart and stripe themselves so that helps a lot so edwin uh, fernandez from the chat had a great question um, that i think kind of relates to some of the things you were talking about how do you navigate the decision process of abstracting a process or set of processes out of your project and making it open source and i think part of that decision making process are some of the things that most people wouldn't think about the the admin stuff you're going to have to get into and the dealing with other people. So what do you say to that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because that abstraction process is like the hardest part. That's like the first step where I was talking about, I, I have these where I added fields to my user model. Step one was like, okay, if I'm going to make this open source, we'll just have the gem require these things and we'll keep like the process the same. But obviously that doesn't work out very well when it's a third-party library. It's one thing to do that and add fields in your own code uh, and maintain that. But when you're doing it from a library, you have to realize like that stuff needs to be 
much more modular and separate from the you know main code base that you're integrating with. So a lot of the decisions now are, if I'm going to implement something, how do I make it so it's not going to break in the future? And uh, you know, overthink any database changes. So like the last stuff that I've generally done, um, in an effort to hopefully prevent lots of migration things in the future is like take good advantage of JSON columns now so that we can add new things like tax support without migration. So we can just shove things into the JSON column and a lot of that stuff we don't need to query. If we did need to query, it would probably more consider adding a field. But, um, you know, for that stuff, it is easier for us to go upgrade the gem and say, hey, we now support taxes and you didn't have to run any migrations and whatever. So those are a lot of things that you'd probably just run the migrations yourself. But in a library, you're trying to avoid those complicated steps that are going to cause issues for upgrading where everybody wants the latest version of the gem in their, in their gem file. So they're like, okay, just changed from version four to version five, but everything's broken now. And that's, that's the thing you have to deal with is like, how do you provide a clean set of steps to upgrade between every version, especially if there are many, any major changes. And that is, that is the hard part. Deprecations. You want to like, you need to know in rails, what is going to happen in Rails version 8. So Rails version 7.1 can start telling people, hey, you shouldn't use this because it's eventually going to get removed in two years. And that's some crazy stuff to, uh, I'm not going that far out with pay or anything, but there's things you have to start thinking about when you're building open source stuff. And the abstractions of the processes are, or one thing where you're like, I don't know how this is going to be used anymore. Building a library. So I have to think about every possibility of how it could be used and plan for that, which makes decisions very, very hard in comparison. Where if you're building a feature for your boss and they gave you a set of requirements, voila, you can, you know, base your decisions off of that. But with pay, we're like, well, I don't know what Stripe's going to come out with next or whoever. And uh, maybe we'll add another payment processor to the mix and support that too. So what if they have features that the others don't? How do we support that and still give a standardized way to interact with most of them? Like a good example is Stripe and Braintree allow you to create a customer record through the API. Paddle does not. Paddle, you use JavaScript and that talks to their API, creates a customer, and we just have to listen to a webhook to sync it back. And that's a weird difference between them all, which end up changing like the code for pay to be totally different for, you know, those reasons. Cause it was like, well, we don't even have the customer stuff anymore. So talking about esoteric things. Oh yeah. So some of what these payment gateways do <laughs> compared to like a brain tree or a stripe are quite different. So yeah, that's, I totally understand yeah. where you're coming from with that. Yeah, that is, uh, that sounds awful. I'm, I'm already like, we have these three or four and I'm trying to pare them down and I want less and I can't imagine doing 10. That sounds awful. <laughs> well, actually it's gotten pretty fast now when, if we have a new customer that comes to us, hey, can you support 
ABC one, two, three gateway. They're like, all right, well, we'll take mm -hmm. a look at it. And, you know. Yeah. So. Now, now you have the interface defined the way you want it. And you know that like, as long as they support these three things, then we can implement that. And that, uh, that's one of those things that you learn over time. You can't just like jump in and have that ready ahead of time. You know, you, you build the first three or four and then you're like, okay, this is the standard, you know, yeah. abstraction around them. So that's you, good. You, like you still get the curveballs, but you try to minimize them. <laughs> yeah. And there are always exceptions. It's always going to be that where, for example, like with Stripe, we have to create payment intents and set up intents ahead of collecting payment information yeah. for SCA now. And like we don't necessarily have to do that for the other ones. So we have exceptions in the code all over where it's like, well, it's Stripe, so we'll go create this before we display the page. And, you know, it is what it is. But yeah, it is a, it's a really interesting challenge and one that like, if you want to learn how to go build an abstraction around something, go find a couple APIs that are similar and try and make a, an interface that treats them all the same. For example, Stripe allows you to switch between monthly and yearly subscriptions. Um, Braintree does not. So you have to calculate, you have to cancel the subscription, calculate how much credit you're going to prorate onto the other one, and then give them a discount when they subscribe to the other one. And like, you know, you'll have fun, um, you know, doing those things and, and really like getting an idea of like, okay, now I've, I've got an understanding of how to think about making these a standard interface that I work with. And that's probably the biggest thing that I think people would learn is thinking about your interfaces. What are my public methods? What are my private methods? And like, what do I want people to know and interact with? What are the arguments for those? And defining that in stone is uh, very helpful because then even in Ruby, we still need those interfaces to be defined. They don't need to be formally defined like you might in Java or whatever, but uh, you still need that packed so that users know what they can do and you know plugins and whatever else, same thing. So, yeah. Well, and then that's another thing. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna ask if you, you know, it, it's obvious that the page M has been complex and that there are lots of challenges with it. If you could do it again, would you? And if so, what would you change, if anything? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think we're in a pretty good spot now, in general. Um, what I ended up doing was we kind of take the same approach that um, that Rails does, where when we have a we have a pay customer and they, it says it's a Stripe or Braintree or Paddle uh, type of customer, I actually now instantiate a Stripe customer class instance that knows how to talk to the API and it knows the record that we have in the database. So I just like, you know, constantize the class name and then delegate to that. So now I have these implementations where they all have the same interface and they just know how to take the arguments and talk to the API. And that was one of the things that I like, you know, learned and this is now the way I would have done it from the the, few, the beginning. Um, and, 
Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know. Extracting the database tables out was a, a big one. I don't know. I'm at the point where I'm pretty happy with it. I wish I had kind of done the separate tables, organized the the sort of, um, I don't know what, I don't have a great name for them yet, but they're sort of that the customers that are Stripe customers all have these features. And I just instantiate a class and it has all the functionality there. And the Rails model can actually just delegate stuff to that or vice versa. And, you know, it knows how to talk to the API the same way that all the other ones do with all their nuances like together. And it separates them out nicely. Um, and I have one of those for charges. So they all know how to do a refund. They all do it in a different way. Stripe like issues a credit note for ones that deal with taxes, like if there was an invoice. So it does a refund, but also issues a credit note. So it takes care of, you know, refunding the tax too or whatever. Um, and those are nice encapsulated things that they're like a service that knows the database stuff is here and knows the API is over here and it knows how to just, you know, uh, deal with each of those actions. And it's been kind of nice to have that separated out for the different customer charge subscription. Um, so at least at the moment, I'm pretty happy with all that stuff. We'll see in the future when things change, but honestly, the, the other, the only other thing that I can think of that I would change is, um, possibly just not trying to support them all and doing separate gems for each one and saying you can't build an app with Stripe and Braintree. That would be the other thing. The reason I did that though, from the beginning was go rails I started with Stripe and over time, people around the world are trying to sign up and they don't have a credit card because that's not a normal thing around the world. And people were like, I'd love to pay you, but I can't. And so I added PayPal, um, but PayPal's APIs are awful. So I ended up using Braintree just for PayPal alone because Braintree's API appeared on the surface to be close to Stripe, but it's, it's really not. <laughs> um, and that was like where I ended up, where I'm like, okay, well, I'll end up with two checkout processes uh, processes. One will be Stripe, one will be Braintree. The checkout page will send you down one of these two paths. And it would be great if I could just like open source the interface that would treat them the same. And you would just tell me ahead of time, is it Braintree or is it Stripe? But you could still call subscribe and give it a plan name. And that would be as far as your code would need to know, hopefully. And Eh, you know, it worked out, but that's what led to all this complexity of now I've got to go build all this stuff that delegates to the correct class for Stripe or this customer's brain tree. Now we got to go send them down the brain tree route. And that needs the same interface that Stripe does, but probably has some nuances and different arguments. And that's the stuff that's like, what do you do if Stripe has an argument, but brain tree doesn't, if you pass that in to your call, then Braintree is going to throw an error because it's like, I don't know what to do with this tax stuff that you said is true. And so, you know, that's that's been the, the challenge of you want to support all those one-off features as well, but is it worth trying to abstract that? Would you be better off just saying, this is the pay stripe gem and the pay Braintree gem. And those have slightly different interfaces, but are mostly the same. 
Um, I would probably go that route these days, but it was great for go rails to have, you know, both implemented. So maybe you still, you can still do separate controllers and the forms can submit to two different places and slightly call different subscribe methods. But ideally I didn't want that. I wanted one subscription controller and you go create a subscription and it's all the same all the time. Yeah. And it's generally doable as long as you're not doing a feature that Stripe does that Braintree <laughs> doesn't, you know? Right. So that's, that's the challenge, but um, I think yeah. like, or I mean, another way to split them, but have a common core component is like, I'm thinking of like the Omni off gem where it has a core thing that it does, but then you can add OmniAuth for Facebook or OmniAuth for other services. Like a plugin yeah. system. Yeah. So maybe you would just have a core system that's called pay or whatever, but then you have PayStripe. And then if someone like pulled in PayStripe, it would know to pull the core components. And yeah. I guess that's another way. But Yeah, I think that that really works well if they have a standard interface, because then you can just mix and match stuff pretty easily. And um, yeah, the ge the gems have a really great, the OmniAuth gems have a great set of sort of settings. They can say like the URL for DigitalOcean is this and GitHub is that. And the token or you current user information is at this route and whatever. And that's pretty awesome because it's a very generic interface that you can plug into and support OAuth 1, OAuth 2, yada 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 um but again it's kind of lucky lucky that it's an OAuth standard so for the most part they're all following the same rules and don't really have different features so i think that makes it easier for OmniAuth to uh to okay. sort of pull that off so one of the topics that i i was curious about um anybody who's watched the show any length of time knows that i'm a big test person a big believer in tests and TDD and do your tests, do your tests, do your tests. A um, couple of questions on that front. A, how much time do you do you find yourself spending on tests on the page M versus the code? And B, do you see um, tests as being more or less or the same importance to OSS than they are to a private um, code base? Yeah, well, um, I would say, well, for one, like, pay has, <laughs> yeah, I don't believe in testing. So there you go. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is payments for pay. So I'm very, like, concerned about having it well tested. Um, what we end up doing is, there. like, what's nice is that everybody has some sandbox environment. So we can actually just run real real tests against a real API. Um, so we actually use VCR to record all the HTTP requests because ideally I can just delete all the cassettes and hit the real sandbox API. We can test everything and know for real that Stripe's API didn't change or Braintree's API didn't change and uh, it will be all solid. So that is, um, important that we test all of the, you know, you make a, a subscription, we want to make sure that the webhook comes in and creates the subscription in the database and gets processed correctly. And, you know, 
it's payments. So it's very, very thorough. We have like a lot, a lot of tests in there. Um, it is trickier because we're interacting with all these APIs. So the VCR uh, cassettes and things really make that possible, but they're also just a huge pain. Anytime you're like, well, we include this. I went through and did a bunch of this recently where we had um, the Stripe stuff being expanding these associated records. So if you grab a Stripe charge, you can find the invoice ID normally, but you can tell it to expand the invoice and then you will get the invoice included in that response. So we have like these VCR cassettes and I change a parameter like that. And it's like, we don't have a recording for that request because you changed the URL just slightly. So you got to go delete those and then rerun them and kind of make sure we filter out the API keys and whatnot. I have a separate account for the sandbox. So the API keys I know have leaked, but it's also the sandbox stuff. So it's <laughs> kind of okay, I guess. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it is, it is a thing where you want to make sure that your interface is set um, your tests check for regressions and everything like that. Colin and I were just fiddling with the regression on Turbo um, earlier where delete Turbo stream HTML elements started requiring a template inside and they never did before and uh, just broke stuff. And so like you need tests for those things because people are going to be real confused when a regression comes through and uh, you didn't catch it. So but you'll be happy to know they're looking at it as we speak. So, you know, yeah, they, we actually found uh, a couple days ago, they, they fixed that issue on turbo, which is good. So, but yeah, that is, um, you know, one where I feel like in some, in some cases, you know, you're fiddling with a new idea for an open source project. Like, don't worry too much about the tests or whatever. Like you're trying to figure out how should this look and feel and work at the beginning. Um, but your users should know that it's not really quite solid where it needs to be. But then once you start to figure that out, you should really take the time and, and be thorough about it because, uh, you know, you don't want a new feature to go back and break other stuff, which happens all the time. When you get unsolicited PRs, I got to fix this thing to add this feature and it's like break something else, then yeah, you're going to be in trouble because you're going to end up releasing that version and then a bunch of people are going to upgrade and complain and you took down production for me and whatever you don't want to be responsible for that so it's nice to uh to be as as, as thorough as you can on it but you just test that public interface and effectively like those same things are what your docs are going to show and you're going to have hopefully examples in your tests for all those different use cases you plan to support which is Nice because I use that all the time looking at a library, go into the test and see how do they do this thing? Because the docs in, infer that it's possible, but there's no examples. So it's always good to see those in, the, in your test suite. So, yeah, devs, <laughs> devs I've noticed aren't always the best document writers. We, we have a tendency to not like to do that. <laughs> yeah. And, and like with pay, it's, it's just things change a lot and it's, it's really hard to take all that time to go back and like, well, we have 50 pages of documentation. Like what, what even does this affect? I don't want right. to have to read through all 50 pages again and just check every single one. So it, it can be, it can be tough, but you can also get into a bit of a habit with 
I write the PR, I update the change log in the PR. I try to also update the docs as well. And then hopefully maybe your, uh, your PRs can be a more all encompassing of this is the change in its entirety, as opposed to here's the change, here's the change log and a separate commit for, you know, half the docs and, Oh, there's other docs that we forgot. You can take your time a little bit more and uh, try to do that helps, but I don't always do that. Well, and I, I, you know, my point of view is that's one of the big reasons I like doing very well-written tests is because that is the documentation. Like you said, you go into the tests a lot and these open source say, well, how does this work? Well, that's the documentation. It's got the examples right there. It's got what it should do. It's got everything in it. And if you write them well and think about what you're writing, you can avoid having to write a lot of docs and they're yeah, self-updating. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a challenge. And like I would love the fancy marketing site docs where it's like, you know, uh Bridgetown site or something like that that's all pretty and everything. But you know what? Uh the markdown files in the repo is as far as we're gonna get on pay for now. So yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's not too bad, but it is uh at least easier to go and change because I can just make the commit right there and I don't have a separate project to go update and, you know, other tooling for it or anything. We just got markdown files and they're real easy to update. Don't have to worry about CSS or anything. Yeah. So, you know, that's definitely nice, but yeah. And, and I, I have seen too, and I'm just wondering what your experience with the OSS has been. Do you get a lot of feedback on the tests themselves? No, I don't think so. I feel like we don't get, it's always about features because that's always what people care about because they're trying to build something and they're like, yeah, this doesn't work or I need this feature. It's never, I don't think I've ever gotten any things related to tests hardly ever. Like <laughs> I'm sure it's been, I'm sure it's been in there where it's like this test is flaky or whatever, so, some little things. Yeah. But in general, no, everybody seems to be concerned about using your library i'm trying to accomplish x it doesn't work help me fix it so right. <laughs> I, I need the thing give me the yeah. thing yeah your shit's broken and yes. i want you to know that right yeah exactly <laughs> so uh, we were talking a little bit before about the the interaction with the community that, that's using your stuff um how What's kind of the the breakdown between people who are just grouchy, grumpy jerks about things and people who are very appreciative and yeah. and constantly saying, "Hey, good job, joy, joy." Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, you get the vocal people. There are a lot of people who use your stuff and never say anything about it, or like maybe they post on reddit or somewhere else and you know say good things about it but like in general on your repo you're not getting just a issue that's like thank you you know you might right. hear on on twitter or something but you're generally seeing the bad most of the time it is there's an issue there's uh this feature i need or something doesn't work um so it is it feels overly negative a lot of times 
but there are also lots of things that are are wonderful that are like people just contributing stuff or helping make it better. Um, there's been quite a few people who you see recurring posting issues and and trying to just make pay better or any of my open source stuff. And they're like, yeah, this doesn't work in Rails 7 yet. So um, I've found this issue and whatever, and they try and help just make it work. And that stuff is is great, but it, you don't really feel like it's necessary. They'll, they'll say something nice, but it'll always be like, hey, we still got like these things to improve or fix or whatever. Um, and they'll say thank you for, you know, the library and whatever, but it's not just, it's never usually just thank you. I appreciate this. And, you know, that being by itself, it's usually tied with the the other issue, something going wrong. <laughs> Sounds right. like for open source projects, you have the issues tab. Now we need the praise tab. <laughs> right. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> Get on that GitHub. I like it. <laughs> um, yeah, it would be it would be kind of cool because they you know they kind of like tr they encourage people to do that with GitHub sponsors, but it's like you have to pull out your credit card to do that, yeah. and it just yeah, needs a just, it just needs a, something simple like statement. that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but a positive statement if you want to, you know, then you could integrate and say, oh, you could add a little donation. Yeah, testimonials tab. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, just a thank you goes a very long way. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know, maybe they could do something with discussions or something like that, that just, you know, I think that tends to be the the thing. It is people trying to get stuff done and it's not necessarily the just people chatting. You're like, working when you're on github so you aren't just like on twitter having a conversation right um so it's a different experience i think and it leads to different tendencies there but you know overall i think if you use your stuff and get value out of it then like it's much easier to go deal with those things but like some of the old projects that you know simple calendar people can post issues on that. And I'll be like, you know, at some point I get annoyed that people are still using it. And I'm like, I'm not going to maintain this. And you can then either like just ignore it. Like a lot of people do or try to encourage a new maintainer or something else. That's probably what you should do as the owner of the open source project. If it's not going to get much of your attention, because it's mostly just bug issues and other things, then like maybe you can find somebody else who would like to take over, um, you know. But yeah, it can be hard as as projects become less relevant for you and people are like, well, you never updated it to Rails 6 and Rails 7's out now and we're still waiting for you to merge these PRs that fix X, Y, and Z. Like if you get those emails from GitHub all the time, then it's probably going to be kind of depressing to to just not have the time or the energy or whatever to go keep up with it. Yeah. So, and man, I oh, we're we're running on time here. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. I wasn't even paying attention to what time it was. Um, yeah, here we are. It's uh, <laughs> I, I do want to close. So OSS is challenging, and it's it's yes. it can be very difficult. Um, but I want I want to end with something that may encourage more people to get involved in OSS because I think it's really important. I mean, OSS is 
is a big part of the Ruby community for sure and many other communities, but it's important. If we didn't have that stuff, we wouldn't be getting very far. So one of the things I'd like to close with is tell us about one of the coolest things you've ever experienced because of OSS. Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I've, I, the, the thing that changed my life was getting those emails from the people in South Africa and whatever else. Cause they, they told me like, you changed my life. Cause I, I couldn't use Ubuntu Linux at all. And you made this thing and now I can. And like, I can't find more fulfilling stuff uh, than that. Like for me, that was just like the greatest thing. And that was what made me want to keep doing it. And, and the other thing too, is just you build this stuff. It's going to help your career. Like I can't be building rail stuff with DHH hadn't made Ruby on rails open source. If Ruby wasn't open source, we couldn't be making contribute contributions for the JIT and everything else that makes it better. So I don't know, to me, open source has been like my career, like biggest thing that I've ever done in my career doing open source when I was a junior. Cause then I can show that like, Hey, I built something that people actually use when I start interviewing at my jobs. And then the more you get into your career, it's the same kind of stuff. You're like, look, uh, this gem I wrote, you know, for fun has a 1.6 million downloads. And I've got like, you know, all this different experience that I can share as well. Um, that's one of the negatives of like working on proprietary stuff. Like you don't have as much stuff to go share. Um, you get to meet a lot of people who like contribute to open source or whatever. Any, anybody who like opens an issue, you get to meet them and talk with them and hopefully become friends and they, you know, get to be part of your community and whatever. So I don't know. Open source has been to me like the foundation of all this stuff. Like there's so much we have that, is due to open source that I just want to keep doing it and give back what I can and um, balance that so that I can make money and afford to do more of that and uh, worked out with doing screencasts and jumpstart and everything to kind of uh, like allow me funding for that. So that's been great. Yeah. Well, we do very much appreciate you taking time to be on the show tonight uh it was a great conversation Thanks for having me oh yeah absolutely yeah, thank you very much for coming yeah love to do this again sometime uh chat thank you very much for being here and making this a great interaction um we love when you guys are here chatting it up and and saying you're saying your piece um mm. the whole reason we do this is because we want everybody to have uh the conversation so um you know keep coming and keep actually, sharing Actually, I think the funniest jokes have come from the chat over the last yep. <laughs> few episodes. Yep, yep. Good you at guys that. Are, are great. Um, so we hope you guys very much enjoyed that. We certainly did. Uh, if you did and you're watching on YouTube, please go ahead and mash that like button. It helps us out a lot and makes me feel all warm and fuzzy. Uh, don't forget to subscribe so you know when we go live, which is every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, also, if you're... Uh, following us, watching this on Twitch, uh, you can click the follow button. All these things I've mentioned are absolutely free, but the best thing that you can do to help us out is for you lovely people to tell your lovely friends. I know you have lots of lovely friends because you're awesome people. 
So um, if you want to help us out, do those things. Also, follow us on Twitter, at Ducky Dev Show. Uh, we will tell you all the things that are coming up. Uh, we've got a lot of guests coming up this, this month. The rest of this month is full of guests, and we're already starting to book up Super September. So uh, we're really excited about that. Next week, we've got uh, Ernesto coming on to talk about uh, code quality. So that sh that's a show to look forward to. Um, and we will see you then. Until then, happy coding. Happy coding. Bye.